Star Trek Monthly Monday number 10. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transfer out, freak! Two! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Sheep flying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-legged, and now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, blah, blah. Hello and welcome to Two True Freaks. I am Scott Gardner. And with me is Chris Honeywell. Hello. Say hey. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> oh no, not that again. <laughs> and we are here to talk about Star Trek. And a little later on in the show, we'll be covering uh, number four of DC Comics' first Star Trek series. And after that, we'll be having a uh, a group discussion on part two of the classic episode, The Menagerie. But first off, we're just going to kind of BS around for a minute. So, what you been up to in the world of Star Trek? Oh, well. <laughs> I've been, uh, I currently have a whole bunch of, I've, I've been scouring and looking for really cheap Star Trek comics and ratty old Star Trek t-shirts and stuff. And I have a whole bunch of auctions sitting up on eBay that are sitting at like one cent hoping that nobody else notices them. And I'm, you know, I feel free to mention them now because I know they'll long be over by the time this episode airs, but I got a lot of one cent with no postage ones waiting, waiting and waiting. It's an experiment. I think I probably got about 25, 30 auctions like that waiting, and maybe one of them, you know, I'll snag one of them, but it'll be great. And, uh, you know, cu- cu- coming up on this segment, um, the, my my newest Star Trek thing is uh, I finally read Biblio Mike's short story, Ooh. the first What'd you law think? of metaphysics. I loved it. I Me loved too. it. Me and too. I'm a he big, needs, I'm he a needs big to write reader. more. I've, I've been reading all my life, and I know good reading from bad reading, and this was good <laughs> reading. I was very, very impressed. I, I, when I first got it, I sort of scanned the first, you know, read the first page, and was like, "Ooh, this is this is this is really this is really good." Because I've read some fan fiction before, and it reminds me of people with their action figures, sort of acting <laughs> out like what you know these weird, bizarre fantasies of what they wanted to see, what they want to see, and you know they get drunk with the power of their writing about their favorite characters, and you just end up with some really bad stilted dial you know awkward dialogue and stuff like that but i'm happy to say yeah none of that in this none of that in this <laughs> none of that no well let's let's put it let's, in proper context this this is uh 
we're talking about a story that was uh, published by one of our listeners in a book called Star Trek Strange New Worlds Number 2. Now, I kind of vaguely remember this series when it came out. Um, it was a series of books. I, I know that there's at least three of the, these books. There might be more, but they're Star Trek adventures written by fans for fans. I think, I think they were done as contests, if I remember correctly. And maybe Mike can uh, help us out with more of the details on that as far as how you actually would get published in these. But I'm pretty sure they were done as, as like writing contests where the best of the best wound up published in these volumes. But uh, this was a story, uh, the first law of metaphysics, and right off the bat, I mean, he hooked me right off the bat when I realized that this was a Spock story told, I mean, it, it's literally taking place, you know, starting anyway, on the day that, you know, from from Spock's perspective, that Kirk died, you know, right. when Kirk went missing on the Enterprise B in Generations. So right off the bat, you know, he he intrigued me with that because that was something that, you know, we didn't get from the movies or anything. We never, you know, Spock wasn't even in Generations. So, you know, here was a a character that was so integral to to Kirk's life, yet, you know, he wasn't part of of that adventure or anything. So it was neat kind of getting it from from Spock's perspective, you know, and seeing that, you know, he was grieving and and all that about it. Now, to to tell you the truth... Most fan fiction that I've read, and this and and as this was written, like as reading the first page, I would have been probably happy with it if it was just a story about Spock musing on Kirk's death, you know, right. and their, their past and stuff. And that's what a lot of fan fiction. That's where this would go, but happily, that's not where this goes. This goes in a very um, this this goes to show. I, I I'll tell you this. I don't want to sound like I'm kissing Mike's ass or you know he's a listener and you know we we write all the time on the on the forums and stuff. So you know if I hated this, it would be such a ter- <laughs> such a gut wrenching thing to have to review it. But it's just makes me so happy that it's so good. If I was putting if I was a producer putting together a new Star Trek series. I would be looking at Mike as a writer because he really understands mm-hmm. the structure of Star Trek stories and the ideas behind Star Trek stories. And this is a exciting Star Trek story with that that centers on character development. Exactly. Without it being just ridiculous, stupid, you know, pop psychology character development. This has true shaded character development that feels right for the characters it it fits in with the way the characters would be in their histories and their relationships with each other um it has has an adventure in it and a mystery that needs to get solved and questions of cosmic importance and it all happens and and it all sort of falls into place in a very star trekky way it resolves in a very it resolves with a very satisfying resolution in a very star trekky way without a shot being fired <laughs> no <laughs> battles you know it's it's not like oh my chance to make a big battle or anything it's without any just um over the top references to anything he does get a reference into uh Gene Roddenberry in there but uh I thought it was really a couple of them because he he also mentions has a character mention infinite diversity, 
but it really fits. <laughs> it really works, you know. Right. And um, I was just very impressed. And and another thing is I, I also, and this is like one of my personal biases, is I know Mike is a man of of religious faith, so I I was um, also like a little leery that there might you know and 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 faith does come up in this, but it comes up in a very Star Trek in a very Star Trek manner. Because, you know, I don't like my religion in Star Trek mixed, except in the way that, uh, in, except in a Star Trek-y way, you know, like Star Trek V. And in a lot of ways, this story is sort of like a better formed story on the theme of Star Trek V. It has a little bit of that, you know... Um, God or omniscient being, you know, being exposed as somebody manipulating a, uh, in, in this case, it's not a God, but it's just a legendary Vulcan figure. And, uh, you know, that's a, yeah, that's a good observation. I never thought of it that way, but that's a good observation. Cause yeah, I, I that's, that's true. I thought, I it, hand- thought, I thought it handled before. it a lot more intelligently and a lot more subtly. And, um, Boy, man, he 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 set up some nice little he set up some nice little ideas in there that got my brain go you know that set my brain going off in the wrong direction you know thinking I knew what was going to happen and right yeah me and, too and as a matter of fact I thought I knew what was going to happen and then I had a sub plan of okay if this is a false lead then this is probably what the reveal is going to be and he tricked me on both of them <laughs> <laughs> so. Nice. <laughs> well, I, I enjoyed this so much because this is what I feel that Star Trek, um, you know, fiction, you know, as far as like the comics or especially the books, you know, the novels. Uh-huh. This is how I feel the novels should feel is that, yes. you know, they're, they're filling in a gap, you know, something that we, we didn't see either on the TV screen or the big screen, but something, you know, some adventure that takes place between, you know, two episodes or two movies or whatever that, that, that fills in a gap that, that takes a, a plot element or a story element or whatever that didn't get fully developed and runs with it and kind of fills in the gaps. And yeah. too many, too many of these kind of things don't do that. You know, somebody has an idea for, oh, what if Kirk fought, you know, a, a right. ship, a giant ship that was made out of, you know, light bulbs or something. And it's like, all right, that's that's all well and good. But, you know, I think part of the problem with that is I distinctly remember there being a mandate from whoever was controlling the Star Trek book rights a few years ago that basically they came right out and said that, look, we're, we're basically not going to solicit Star Trek book ideas from just Joe Blows anymore because we feel that, you know, unless you've got a couple of books under your belt right. and unless, you know, you're, you're established basically and, in, and unless – it's like a threat to the Federation or a threat to all the universe or to all existence. Unless it's some big, huge overblown story. They don't want a lot of really battles. Interested. Right. Yeah. And so they sense. lost, they lost stories like what Mike wrote, which is, you know, a, a, a human story. You know, it's a story of, yeah. of characters. And that to me is when Star Trek functions the best is That's when it's a story about it's all people. about. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's what brings I, I honestly that's what brings me to Star Trek is to see what the what's up with the characters. I don't care about I don't care about what the new ship looks like. I think it's cool to see new ships and new enterprises and stuff like that. But that's not what I'm there for. You know, I'm there to see Kirk and Spock or or whoever or whatever crew, you know, for whatever Star Trek I'm watching or reading or you know, consuming and brain consuming. That's that's what I want. That's what makes it. And and I mean, I think pretty much almost everybody knows that. Ah, no, obviously they don't. <laughs> but uh, Mike sure does. And his character development is real, you know, it's it's complex, you know. And uh, you get the, uh, I mean, there's um, scenes with interplay with Spock, with a half-human and half-Vulcan little girl, Savik, who's half-Vulcan, half-Romulan, and a full-blooded Vulcan you know, sort of the the leader of the the cat who was Spock's childhood teacher, who's right. very biased against half Vulcans. She she's a old school full Vulcan, and just from their dialogue and their interaction, you can see how each you know you can feel that you know Spock's human side coming through. He writes Spock's human and Vulcan side very well. The dialogue. Dialogue is one of my key things that can take me out of a good movie or a good book or something, like clumsy dialogue. That's why I stopped reading fan fiction, because a lot of times the dialogue's jargony or overly, um, you know, that people will use the dialogue as an exposition tool to get their story, and it, and it, and it comes off clunky. But right. um, Mike's is very organic and smooth, and feels like people talking, and it feels like people, and it feels like the characters that we, kn- the characters that we know, feel like those characters. You know, well, Spock. You know, Spock is the main character in this, and Spock in particular is, to me, he's that one Star Trek character that is extremely easy to screw up. I yeah. mean, if you don't write Spock right, it shows. Yeah. You know, it really shows when he's not handled correctly, you know, and, and it's a daunting task to write a character that's supposed to be so smart and, and you know, just everything that's that makes up Spock. So, I mean, my, my hat's off to him for just tackling that in the first place, but then to pull it off... Well, and, and really and, and, make it seem like this is something that that we would see Leonard Nimoy saying on the screen. Really, you know, that's quite the feat. I was really impressed with it. And the thing, and another thing about Spock is, Spock is really one of the characters who's developed the most in Star Trek. So, you know, when you're writing for Spock, you're also it's very dependent on what period of Spock you're writing. You know, right. and you know, the later he gets, the more you know, integrated his emotions and logic get to the, or the more comfortable he is with having both. And the more he feels free to let his, you know, imagination and, and emotions go. And this is, this is in a, a phase where he's fully comfortable with that. But at the same time, he's going back to Vulcan and basically, you know, confronting his old tormentor, 
and at the same time, he's got a ver- that the little girl who's basically, you know, a sort of proxy version of himself who's getting treated the same way. And, you know, like Spock, she's very talented, although in a different way. She's more talented in a metaphysical, psychic sort of, you know, sort of a uh, Gary Mitchell sort of way. Actually, right. Gary Mitchell's even mentioned in it, uh, uh, you know, uh, when Spock sees her display her powers. And that uh, that element could have been very cheesy, too. Right. And he handles it th- that very well, also. The, the scene where, you know, you first see her manifest her powers by uh, breaking open a rock and water's coming out of it to feed these little scavenger creatures. And then she get a- gets angry and the ground opens up and, like, they all fall, <laughs> you know, the creatures fall into the cracks of the earth and, like, die in there. And uh, very much like a little kid having a, having a um, temper tantrum and... Uh, it's very interesting, you know, to see how Spock treats her from that point. You know, Spock, once he gets an understanding of the little girl's power and and what's at stake, and at the same time he has an understanding of her because, you know, he, basically that was him in some way when he was there being tormented for being half-human. So it's very, very, very well done. And it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't cop out on anything and it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't peter out to a dumb ending, which, you know, fan <laughs> stories, professional stories, you know, some of the greatest authors are, you know, notorious for doing that. And this one does, this one doesn't disappoint. No, not at all. I, I would, I would really like, you I'm know, still afraid to read the rest of the stories. In yeah, the me book. too. That's <laughs> funny. Cause I had the same feeling. I was like, well, I don't know about the rest of the book, well, but that, that know, part of it, I really, I'm hoping I'm hoping that the editors of the book if 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 you know they picked such a uh, a good one from Mike to put in the the rest of them will be uh hopefully in the same ballpark so maybe I'll just randomly turn to one and and uh, give it a try for next month and hopefully I'll be pleasantly surprised <laughs> well I'll definitely read the rest of it I mean any any chance to read Star Trek because yeah. I mean at this point um you know, not to not to beat a dead horse or, or bring up a sore subject, but at this point, I, I think I consider Star Trek ended. So now it's just a matter of going back and being able to finally, you know, now that the, there's Catch finally a, a yeah, there's finally a, an ending point. So now it's just going back and playing catch up. You know, all the the books I never had time to read and all that. You know, and plus they'll continue. I'm sure they'll continue to come out dealing with the you know, the original timeline for, for some time to come yet. I mean, the people aren't done with that yet, but oh, still. No, there's still plenty of, there's so many characters and so much time in, in s- timelines in Star Trek that you can just tease out stories from wherever, you know. But I really, I really enjoyed this. I mean, I'm a sucker for a good Spock story anyway, especially I, I like this this era of Spock, you know, the 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 yeah. movie Spock was really my favorite one. I always found the 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 TV version of Spock he would great on me after a while. But I like you know from like number two on, I really like that version of Spock. You know where he he was seemed a little yeah. more comfortable in his skin. You yeah, know? well, you know, dying and being reborn might have relaxed <laughs> him a little bit, chilled him the hell out a and, little bit, and and apparently you know Savick relaxed him a little bit too. Ooh, 
getting a little bit of that Savic action. Yeah. So hopefully, uh, you know, great job, Mike. I hope um, I hope we were able to talk about it enough without like. Um, I, I think we did a pretty good job of like talking about it without spoiling. I think too we've much kissed his ass sufficiently for yeah for, for one episode episodes. for two episodes. Yeah. That's it. That's it. I'm not doing it no All more. Right. All right. Well, I'm sure, Mike, you do something that would piss me off. So, cut it out. <laughs> there, maybe. There. Now it's been a fair and balanced review. There you go. Oh God, are we one of those shows now? Sure. Why not? <laughs> Whatever, man. Well, I I want to read you a couple of, a couple of things here. Okay. All right. Here's here's. Uh, Here's probably my favorite one. This is number 109. Tell me tell me if you know what I'm talking about. All right. Number 109 is dignity and an empty sack is worth the sack. Here's number 27. There's nothing more dangerous than an honest businessman. Number 34. Peace is good for business. And number 35. War is good for business. I knew that was coming next. <laughs> is it? Is this some sort of like the art of war? Sort of business business like manual or something that you're reading. This is from? basically yeah. This is like the is Sun Tzu this... art of war. This is the one for basically the the uh, Ferengi. Oh, <laughs> this is. Uh, this is a bu- I snagged this sucker from one of those little like secondhand shops for forty seven cents. I have been after this book for a long time. Believe it or not, this is Star Trek: Deep Space Nine: The Ferengi Rules of Acquisition. Now, if you ever watch Deep Space Nine, and I don't highly recommend that, by the way, but if you do watch that show, just about every episode they would spout. A rule of acquisition, and they're just you know pretty random, but they 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 have to do with you know the the rules of business conduct that the Ferengi go by. Right. And these and these guys are religious about it. You know they memorize them like Bible passages and quote them throughout all the different seasons and the different episodes. And some of them are freaking hilarious. You know, like females and finances don't mix and stuff like that. Um, Trust is the biggest liability of all. I mean, some of these are, are yeah, really they're, good. They're cynical brace of bastards, obviously. <laughs> right, but I mean, some of them are, I mean, but there, there's also ones that are like oh, yeah. practical. Well, they're, they're, they're practical. right out of real, those are right out of real things. Now, it's really funny that you mentioned this because I was just going through, I had a, a short comic, you know, one of the magazine long boxes that I found, like, shoved in the back of one of my closets, and I pulled it out, and it's all full of these fanzines and magazines that I'd bought in the past. And one of them was, it wasn't sci-fi related at all, but somebody had written an article about how the Ferengi, and this is very much like when episode one came out with Jar Jar and the Nemoidians, (laughs) that the Ferengi were, you know, a negative portrayal of Jewish people were an anti-Semitic, you know, bashing. They were. And, I uh, can see and, that, and, actually. And, you know, that, that they're very businesslike and money-grubbing. And and then it had a picture. I'm going to find this. I'm going to pull this magazine out and scan it and put it up in our forum to show this article because it was a really greatly great article, but it was like, 
you know, they had a old World War II propaganda picture of, you know, a totally horrible caricature Jewish character with the big nose and big ears and, you know, a rat-like face and rubbing his hands together and, you know, just looking evil and... And then a picture of a Ferengi next to it. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, 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 uh, the guy, I think this guy might be on to something. <laughs> and, well, you I know. mean, you, you know me. I mean, I, I, I almost pride myself in the fact that a lot of that kind of shit honestly goes completely over my head when I watch things. You know, I, right. don't, I don't watch things or read things. You know, you know why? Because we, we grew up in Carthage, which – People were too ignorant to hate a lot of racial groups because <laughs> they didn't know. Like when I was a, like, I, the, this is my ignorance. When I was grew up in Carthage, I didn't know what Jewish people were. All I knew about anything Jewish was sometimes Archie Bunker would make jokes about it or something. Right. But so I was like, okay, so they're you know a, a religious group or whatever. But you know Archie Bunker made fun of any, everybody, so it didn't register. You know I couldn't. You know, look at somebody and go, even, you know, I didn't even make the connection of like Jewish names and Italian names and stuff that, right. you yeah, know, Italian people had certain sounding names and stuff like that. I mean, Carthage, New York, they understood black and white. That was pretty easy because they could use your eyeballs to figure that one out. But all like I like when I was a kid, I didn't even know like what like, you know, all I, you know, when people would like call each other like um uh gay slurs in in class and stuff you know and pick out pick on kids and call them fags and stuff like that i never you know i knew it was referring to gay people but i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to pick a gay person out of a of a police lineup back then because i had no <laughs> idea you know i didn't know i i knew there were people that acted effeminate and stuff like that but you know growing up in that hick town we just didn't and I guess, you know, in some ways that's for the better, you know? Yeah, I think so, too. And, 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 run, and it's weird so. because it was kind of, you know, I, I know the people of Carthage were willing to be super racist against, like, Jewish people, but they just didn't really, that world had never been exposed to them, so they were missing out, I guess. They had to just take out their, you know... I mean, I remember there was a lot of racial tension against Haitians, too, because there were Haitian refugees staying at Fort Drum, and people were like... You know that the Haitians are going to do voodoo on us and stuff, but that's that was again black and white. You know, something they could see, and like there were no Mex. There, I'm sure there were a couple Mexicans in Carthage, but there, you know, I don't, I don't even remember people like making fun of Hispanic people or anything like that. So weird. Oh yeah, it is. And, it is. Well, I mean, I, I, but I remember watching when I finally forced myself to sit down and watch all of DS9. At some point in my viewing of that show. There was there was a, a one you know because there were several episodes that actually took place on the Ferengi planet you know Ferenginar, and one of those episodes I was right in the middle of it and it actually hit me that holy shit how did they get away with this when when this really seems like because it's sci-fi at Jewish people you yeah because it's sci-fi because you can you can put things into there but yeah but it's not but that's the thing is it's not like it's not like they cleverly made the Ferengi into the, like, the, you know, when you see the plight of the, when you see Jewish people portrayed metaphorically in a TV show, 
it's usually in the context of like the Holocaust or something, you know, or because I, I do remember that from when I was a kid, like seeing the movie The Holocaust and hearing about World War Two and stuff. But, you know, once again, it was just like, OK, that was a crazy person who was after a certain group, but I didn't know anything that defined that group, you know, and uh but no, the Ferengi aren't like showing the plight of the Jewish people or something. They're just sort of a representation of the negative stereotypes. Right. Which doesn't make sense, you know. To <laughs> it, it makes sense because the, it makes sense because you can, you know, you can have those negative stereotypes, but they're portrayed to a race, and they they make good foils. You know, they make good characters because they're. They're good for the rest of the characters to bounce off of in a negative way. And they have a lot of, you know, then you can have the one Ferengi. I'm sure there's a Ferengi character in it that just, like, eventually is getting worn down and learning lessons about, human, you know, you know, people over money and all that stuff who's becoming more of a, you know, became more of a sympathetic character as time wore, like Archie Bunker. Right. You know, who was very sandpapery at first, but by the end of like the Archie Bunker's Place series, he'd warmed up to every racial group and he was just kind of grumpy. <laughs> but he wasn't flat out racist anymore because he They learned, pulled his teeth out. <laughs> they'd le- they'd learned too many, you know, he'd learned too many lessons in the course of 20 seasons of, you know, all in the family or whatever. You know, to for his character to be the old Archie Bunker, he would just be a total asshole if he was still like that. You know, so. But yeah, I I I I don't understand what they were thinking with that too. It's just, I you know like I could understand the Jar Jar step and fetch it thing because I don't think it was really like uh, African American step and fetch it routine. I think it was. It, it, it my first thought was Roger Rabbit. You know, that's my first thought is, oh, it's he's got the voice of Roger Rabbit. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, and the Nemoidians, um, you know, yes, they were badly dubbed Japanese characters. But, but I that think that was, was supposed to be an homage. Yeah, really, that was a, that like... was. I thought that was a hilarious homage to old, you know, Fu Manchu serials, you know, of the Fu Manchu. Well, I looked gem- at it more like the old Godzilla movies that we watched. And you know, we that too. On, you know, on Creature Feature yeah. or some shit. That's how I took it. Because I instantly saw, I, my first thought was, well, George Lucas has a lot of money to spend on this and all this computer technology. So if he wanted to, everybody else's mouths are in sync with their dialogue. So he must have been putting them out of sync. For some reason, you know, he must have done it on purpose, but it's not like somebody missed it in the editing room. So <laughs> so I'm I'm more than happy to enjoy those homages. But yeah, the Franke are it's, God, you it's just a you just brought up something that I've been meaning to get to for the well let me let me finish off by saying I like this book. I like this book a lot because it's simple. You can read it in five minutes. It's it'll make you laugh out loud, but I liked it probably best of all because it's one half really useful advice, and then it's also one half like those completely fucking annoying motivational posters that I I've seen in every business I've ever walked in. You know, like yep. like usually right outside like the HR department. Yep. 
And so I got the biggest kick out of it because it, it, it is. It's a lot of fun. It's a very fun book. But you mentioned uh, the out of sync thing. And this is something I've been meaning to talk about, uh, Star Trek related for a while now. This is, you know, we need to do a whole show about conventions in not just Star Trek, but other other mediums like, you know, comics and Star Wars and stuff, too. But Star Trek in particular, it hit me the other day when I was watching an episode of Star Trek. And they went down to some planet and they were interacting with, you know, with the local people and all that, that. All right, they use the universal translator, right? But why Correct. in all of Star Trek, in all, you know, the original series and all the later series and all the seasons and all the movies, it never came up that all they're using is a translating device, but that wouldn't put their lips in sync with whatever they're saying. Why right. did no alien race ever notice that yes, you're speaking my language, but you know, your lips are completely out of sync. I, I just, you know, I guess it's one of those things. It's one of those suspensions of disbelief. You're, yeah. you're not supposed to think about it. But yeah. when, when you think about it, it all just kind of falls apart. You yeah. know what I mean? Otherwise, it would have been too much post-production work. Now now that now that you're editing together shows, you can identify with this. It would be too, oh, yeah. much, too much post-production work for them to put all the put all that out of sync depending on whose perspective you were seeing it through on the TV show to make the realistic. That's why most, that's why most like space movies don't bother to have space be silent. You know, when you're out in space, they don't, they, you always hear explosions and stuff, even though, you know, because it would just be too much work to simulate everything exactly how it would be in reality. It's better to just take shortcuts. And even though it's more work to put the sound in there, if you didn't put the sound in there, you would have to, you know, have different, like 2001 where you hear breathing and stuff. You would have to think, and, and once you did that realistically, you'd have to do everything else realistically. And yeah, it's right. too much work. Let people's brains fill in the rest and just, <laughs> <laughs> and let them go with it. You know, that's not the important part. The story is the important part. So you, you can blow off as much stuff as you want, as long as you keep the story and the characters on track. <laughs> well, so with that, I. with that, I think we need to uh, take a little break and come back with uh, DC Comics Star Trek number four, right? Spock, help me, Spock! <laughs> Excellent. We'll be right back. From far beyond the galaxies, I've journeyed to this place to study the behavior patterns of the human race. And I find them highly illogical. Girl meets boy. They fall in love. She says he's everything she's dreamed of. But when they get married, before he's aware, she changes his habits the way he combs his hair. She changes him to someone he's never been. And then complains he's not like other men. Now, really... I find this most illogical. Take the case of your automobiles. Greatest invention since man discovered wheels. Hydromatic overdrive, floor on the floor. 
Push-button windows, push-button doors. Double-barrel carburetors rush you any place, but you never can find a parking space. Highly illogical. Take the case of modern man. He works all his life, gives it all he can, saves all his money, works overtime, pinches every penny, banks every dime. All he can think about is money, but you know that he can't take it with him where he's going to go. Now I find that fascinatingly illogical. Now is the time to journey home, to tell of what I've learned. My people, I believe, have every right to be concerned. For in spite of computers and advanced psychology, behavior patterns are still a mystery. I predict the future of this earthly human race is that having made a mess of Earth, they'll move to outer space. Well, there goes the neighborhood. Totally, completely, absolutely, irrevocably, highly, illogical. Hey now, we're back. <laughs> wow, wow, yeah, we're back. <laughs> All right. So anyway, we are going to talk now, or I'm going to talk now, and you're going to listen, huh? About Star Trek, uh, DC Comics, Star Trek number four. This is the May 1984 issue, written by Mike W. Barr. With art by Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. All right, so we le- we pick up pretty much where we left off the last issue. We've got uh, Kirk and Kor. They're uh, standing face-to-face with the Excalibian, who warns Kirk uh, to let events run their course or face his doom. <sighs> Kor rushes at the creature and is severely burned. Security arrives, and they try to phaser the Excalibian, but it has no effect. It just, like, passes right through him, basically. Kirk orders them to cease fire and ask the creature, who he remembers as Yarnak. Yarnak. There should be, like, a show, like, Shields and Yarnak. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, can you see him, like, doing the robot sketch, you know? I would watch that. But anyway, Kirk remembers him as Yarnak from the classic episode, The Savage Curtain. See, Biblio Mike, I actually remembered the name of the episode this time. Yeah, because right, so anyway. he reminded us. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote it down. Um, he asked him what his, uh, what his reason is for appearing, and Yarnak says that, you know, the last context they had, which was in that episode. Now, this is the, that was the one where, you know, Kirk, Spock, Space, Abraham, Lincoln, and Surak, the pers- pussy Vulcan – Spock, uh, help you know, me, Spock. Yeah, oh, that guy annoys the shit out of me. I, I never liked him. I don't know what it is. I, I just don't like pacifists, I guess. Spock, they piss help me, off. me, Spock. You know, they all fought all these, like, historical bad guys, one of which was uh, uh, Kalos, you know, the original Kalos. Anyway, Yarnak and his people decided that that battle, you know, the conclusion of that was inconclusive. So in order to further study good versus evil, he and his people have basically put the kibosh on the Organians and have orchestrated a full-scale war between the Federation and the Klingons. So Kirk pleads with Yarnak to, you know, consider the carnage that's going to be caused by this war, but, 
you know, Yarnak, he, uh, he isn't swayed by all this. He just wants, you know, his only concern is finding out which power is greater, you know, which force is greater, good or evil, with, you know, the Federations playing the part of the good guys and the Klingons playing the part of the bad guys. And, you know, which core objects to that, you know, to being, you know, personified as a bad guy. So Yarnak, you know, he puts the whammy on the Enterprise like they did the last time around. And, uh, you know, then he just splits. He takes off. And Kirk eventually convinces Core that they need to work together against, you know, their common enemy. And they need to avert this senseless whole-scale war that, you know, is going to cost a lot of lives and, and do a lot of damage. So together they team up and they go down and they break up a brawl that's broken out between their respective crews on deck five. And Kirk demands to know who started the fight. So of course, you know, it's uh, Konam, the pussy Klingon who speaks up, you know, he had been missing his people. You know, he's only been on the ship for two issues, but already he's missing his people. I miss my and- people. <laughs> I'm really starting to like, dislike him too. And, you know, so he went down to, to visit with other Klingons, but other Klingons hate this guy. You know, they see him as a traitor, and they probably see him as a pansy-ass, too. And, you know, and the Federations, well, they, they just hate Klingons anyway. So, you know, he was the catalyst for this great big fight to break out. Um, Kor basically, you know, he he wants to kill Conum right there where he stands, but for now, anyway, Kirk talks him out of that. Uh, the two crews, eventually, they, they put aside their differences, and they all agree to, to work together. And there's a little, you know, back-slapping, handshaking ceremony. It was the one part of the issue I thought really came off a little little forced and cheesy. But, you know, for now, they agree to all work together. And there's a scene where uh, Nancy Bryce walks off holding uh, Conum's arm. And, you know, she's telling him that he's not alone anymore. So, you know, it looks like they've got the the love connection going on. So working together, Kirk and the Klingons, they come up with a plan to punch a hole through that black field that's uh, surrounded the planet Organia. They're going to use a shuttlecraft and the wormhole stabilizer from a couple issues ago, you know, the one that was was stabilizing the wormhole so that the Klingons had a, a space station located inside of it. Why the hell this works, I really don't have any idea. I don't know why a wormhole stabilizer would work on this black field around Organia, but it does. Well, you need a wormhole generator, too, I guess. Because you've got to generate <laughs> it and then stabilize it. It's not like oh, there was maybe just the, a wormhole okay. hanging out there. So they, that's what must be what they were specially equipping the uh, right. shuttlecraft so with. They, so they tunneled through the black field, basically. Yes. All right. Okay. All right. That makes sense. All right. They don't see. That's why I keep you around. You make sense of goofy comic books for me. Um, it's a talent so, of mine. <laughs> list that on your next resume. I can make sense out of insensible comic book concepts. Hey, any any job that would hire me because of that must be an awesome job. Oh, I would think so. They need you at Marvel right now. No. So thanks. anyway, Kirk. Savik, Kor, and some other Klingon dude named Kaz, they uh, go down. That's actually a weird name for a Klingon. Kaz. Well, because every Klingon has to have a K-sounding name. I guess. I wonder if they... Oh, never mind. I'm going to go there. (laughs) Plugman. 
I can think of some rude names yes. you can come up with. I won't go there for now. That's what the so Klingons anyway, they... get all pissed off when you use the K word. <laughs> so they all go down to that big castle where we met the Organians way back in the Errand of Mercy episode. And bursting in, Kirk finds the Organians are being held in stasis by the ex-Calbians. And I love this. My favorite part of this entire story in classic Captain Kirk style, very much like how he's able to talk a computer into committing suicide. Kirk actually talks the Excalbians into taking a more active role in this little experiment of theirs. And he has them take on the role of good in the fight versus evil in the fight in the, in the, you know, in the Organians, he portrays them as evil. So he basically pits these two against each other. And, uh, and, you know, they take him up on the challenge and they go to war with each other. And, you know, and another scene that reminded me of something later from Star Trek, you know, it shows them running out of the castle and running away from this battle, you know, between these godlike creatures that reminded me of, you know, the, the scene in Star Trek five, right. you know, where orders the torpedo and then they run like hell to get away from the God creature. It was a lot, you know, very similar to me, but anyway, they, you know, they all run out of the castle and, Kirk calls for an emergency beam out as the planet pretty much uh, breaks up around them. And, uh, you know, due to the power of these godlike beings and all, you know, they grow to like immense size and then the planet just kind of winks out and the Enterprise is just left sitting there in space by itself. So, you know, crisis averted. Back on the Enterprise, uh, Kirk has a Hura signal Starfleet about, you know, what the situation is, that everything's cool now. And, uh, you know, he tells them to that they need to sue for peace. And Kirk actually seems pleased by the outcome of all this, you know, to be out from under the thumb of the Organians and, you know, to, to basically be able to do their own thing. Now, you know, the, the Federation and humanity and even the Klingons, you know, they don't have to be babysat anymore, which also means that it frees up the writers for more uh, stories of more tension between the Federation and the Klingons. And that's pretty much where we leave this one. You know, the Enterprise just uh, warps away to, you know, to have further missions. So what'd you think of this one? Not bad at all. Um, (laughs) Not the most original story, and there's some plot holes in it. And I thought Kirk was maybe a little too quick to pal up with the Klingons. You know, that that sort of worked out a little too easily. But, you know... I thought they they were a little quick to team up with him too yeah that's what i mean both sides sort of softened up pretty easily i love the part where where you you were saying he he's he's talking to these guys he says look i'll help you out (laughs) he pits them against each other framed (laughs) framed that he's helping them and then he ends up having them fighting each other to the death and runs away which is a total kirk thing and there's actually a line in there where he's like you know, get down in the pit and get your hands dirty, you know, which is, a, you know, you could hear Shatner delivering that dialogue, you know. Yes, giving yes, very the, much so. The, the little pep talk about how if you really want to find out about the battle of good and evil, you got to fight it yourself. You can't just sit back and watch somebody, you know, what's the matter with you? Are you a bunch of little pussy rock creatures with spider heads? <laughs> What do you well, you know, is- something that just occurred to me is whoever wins this battle, I wonder if they would come back pissed off at Kirk. Well, I mean, they already—I you know? mean, it, already, like in the last issue, they pretty much just squashed the Organians. They just came in and 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 put the Organians down. So you'd think they'd still be able to beat the Organians. 
but I guess maybe they caught him by surprise or something because they seemed evenly matched when they were just standing in opposite rows of each other and firing weird little slivery pieces of light at each other or whatever they were doing or breaking up reality or who knows or going into another dimension to fight or who knows well, it, you know and and you know and knowing kirk he's like ah result you know like you said problem solved but you know meanwhile there's some other dimension that all of a sudden had these two giant races appear there and start <laughs> just destroying everything around them and you know where the, the hell end, are these guys where they come from yeah at, at busting the, at, up my reality at the end the excaliburs and the and the that's just what i'm going to call them from now on Excalibrians or whatever, Excalibrians or they're the Excaliburs and the and the Orgasmians can can you know they can look around the ruins of this other universe that they've just completely decimated and go, oh that's it, war is hell. Lesson learned. Come on, friend, <laughs> we don't need war anymore. And meanwhile, there's right, just I... like a whole universe laid waste behind them. You know, I guess there's several different scenarios that could play out, but the two that came to mind for me is that, okay, since the Excalbians already seemed more powerful, they just wipe out the Organians in this big fight, which means that Kirk basically sacrificed a people, you know, to to yeah. save his own ass. But you Kirk know? wasn't a big fan of the Organians anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but he had, still, he had bad you blood, know? bad blood with them. But I guess he has bad blood with the Klingons too. But that didn't stop him. Well, then yeah. also on the flip side, you know, he he basically he really did just kind of sell out the Organians. So if yeah. the Organians come out the victors in this, you would think they'd come back to our reality just a little fucking pissed off yeah, at yeah, Kurt. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, the Organians, and and he cast them as evil too. <laughs> yeah. He says you can. They, <laughs> You'll be good, and they'll be evil. And uh, oh yeah, sounds good, Kirk. And meanwhile, the Organians are like, "Fuck you, man." <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know? you know, they're not really evil. They're just a bunch of old men that dress like you know, that, like they came out of the the Black Cauldron or something. Uh, they, you know, yeah, but I mean, they dress like I Solomon, really... Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> but. <laughs> they're the elders right. from Suzanne. Exactly. They they were just sitting around. They were sitting around talking to Billy Batson, minding their own fucking business. And all of a sudden, it's like, woo, there's some light around us, and they don't know what happens. And then they wake up, and there's Kirk going, these guys are evil. You should fight them. And all of a sudden, they're in a big war with the fucking the thing with the head of a spider and and they're just like what the hell just happened i don't know but i <laughs> fucking it's kurt's it's, fault <laughs> it's actually pretty pretty hilarious when you think about when you it put it that way you know? yeah and you know because kurt because <laughs> kurt's like wait he a minute just screwed don't... everybody <laughs> basically <laughs> It's actually like a like a kid on the playground getting picked on by a by a bully. So rather than fight the fight, he just gets the bully to go pound Beat somebody, somebody else. <laughs> Come on, let's get the hell out of here before <laughs> they realize they've been duped. Before they realize, it's, it's, it's yeah. like it's like Bugs Bunny tactics, you know? Yeah, oh, it he, is. He, oh, that's funny. That really is funny when you think about it. Ah, oh, that cracks me up. <laughs> Well, the uh, the only other note I had on this one is uh, is something that that Biblio Mike took me to task for saying uh, a while back, but I got to say it again. You know, enough with the with the TV people. You know that 
because by this point, you know, we, we've we've had Khan. Now we've had uh, we had Kor. We had who was the other Klingon that we had from from the first issue? Oh, we had Klaatu, Kang, had or somebody. I... We had Kerrang. We had you know, uh, Q-Tip. Oh, we had... <laughs> now we got uh, you know the the Organians and the Excalbians. I mean that that should be enough for a while. You know what I mean? Because I, I really that was my one beef with this series as a kid. Clag was Clog. it? Uh, you know, it just didn't seem like they were being quite original enough, you know, as far as new missions, new worlds, new characters. It, it seemed like they really, you know, every two or three issues, they were running into somebody from the original series. And I, I know that that's not a literal truth, but it just felt like yeah, too, too many callbacks. You know what I mean? Because I know eventually they they see uh red jack again they see friggin uh trelane again okay come on you know i mean you know there's certain ones that are just better left you know in in the original series not revisited and trelane is definitely one of them in my opinion so but uh yeah i i liked this you know I, i really enjoyed it I thought that it had the the classic trek feel down pretty pat you know the story was a little a little simplified, but you know that's good. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. the art. The art is uh, once again really nice. The spaceships are looking real fine, and the Enterprise is looking awesome in, in it. Yeah, the, yeah, that was the one thing in the art that I liked the most was the Enterprise. I actually thought in this fourth issue, I got to admit, I, I actually thought the art took a little step down, except for the ships. The ships have been consistent. So far, through you know, through all four issues, I thought yeah. especially the Enterprise looked re- looked really good, and then you know the character likenesses I think are, are pretty good. It's just some of the art gets a little spotty in in places, and some of that might be the coloring too. I noticed right. uh, it's for got, the first time it's colored color- a lot like the um, Gold Key comic. Yes, yeah, yeah, a lot of solid backgrounds, a lot of like solid purple and uh-huh. solid gray backgrounds, and that's. That sort of thing always bugs me. I mean, that's a staple of old comics anyway, because they didn't have the the refined printing process to really, you know, fill in super detail and backgrounds and stuff like that. But still, you know, just giving you nothing more than just a solid blue, purple or yeah. something or blue, yeah, that that kind of bugged me. And the the Klingons, I don't know what is up with the. I mean, granted, up to this point, we'd only ever seen these breed of Klingons one time in the motion picture so you know they didn't have a lot to work with but still you know they all look like they're you know they're all off the same you know cookie cutter yeah and they're all jaundice looking they've got that really really yellow, yellow skin so it's it's kind of funny they almost uh you know you were talking before about racial stereotypes and stuff like that they almost to me look like some sort of uh some sort of like World War Two era, you know, like how they used to draw the Japanese in the yeah. comics. You know, Captain yeah, yeah. America be smacking the Japanese guys, and they were all yellow yeah. and had a certain look to them. You know, that's that's almost how the Klingons look here. Yeah, you are correct. But overall, yeah, I really liked it, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to more because I from here I can't remember what uh, what comes next. I don't remember what the next adventure is, so I'm really looking forward to it. It's nice to to have some some new old trek. Yes, it sure is. And uh 
I might get off my ass and read, now that I, I mentioned it a, a couple minutes ago, I might read some of my Gold Key comics and uh, report in on those, oh, which God. should be good for a laugh for you. But I like oh, yes. I like them in a weird, I like them just because I remember reading them as a kid and anything Star Trek like that as a kid had a distinct effect on me. So, yeah, maybe I'll dig into some of those. I don't think I'll go through them one by one and read them all, cherry pick, <laughs> but... Yeah, for sure. For cool. sure, dude. For sure. All right. We'll take a little break, and we'll come back with part two of yes. the Menagerie. The, the finale of the Menagerie. This is the final part of this episode, and we are going to cover part two of The Menagerie. Rejoining us for this part of the episode are our good friends Lenny Cooper, also known as Seatowner1 on the CGS forums. He's a devoted fan to classic Trek and a moderator of the Cerebus Yahoo group. Also joining us again is Mike Petit. Biblio Mike on the CGS forums, an established Star Trek author. I'm going to keep saying that. I'm going to keep drilling it in. <laughs> he brings the much-needed gravitas. Gravitas. Who goes that word again? I love that word. Gravitas. It's like the biggest word I know, so i got to just keep saying it to sound smart. So welcome back, gentlemen. Thank you. And we're going to get right into this. Is, how are, are you guys feeling better from the suspended animation sleep that we put you in on the Botany Bay? How yes. long... How long? <laughs> you have hibernation sickness. I can't, I can't do a very good Bosch, but there you go. <laughs> Mix, mixing our Star Trek and Star Wars again. That's don't, always a don't cross the streams. Yeah, don't cross the streams. <laughs> All right, getting right into this, I'm going to just give the quick and dirty rundown because I'm going to largely assume that fandom has seen these wonderful episodes. And if you don't, go to our Lipson site, follow the link, and you can go watch it on the officially sanctioned CBS site. There you go. All right, so in this one, we pick up pretty much where we left off. Spock's uh, court-martial continues, and he's utilizing this mysteriously beamed-in footage of Pike's experiences on Talos IV from 13 years ago as evidence. Pike, you know, he's been captured by the Talosians. And he's subject to mental illusion after mental illusion that are all done in an effort to make him fall in love and, and feel a, a sense of protection and everything to this Vena girl who is a, a fellow human prisoner. When that plan appears to be failing, the Telosians then bring in number one, who's uh, Pike's female first officer, and this young, hot, redheaded yeoman to basically just offer more of a, a choice of potential mates for Pike. 
Pike eventually gets the upper hand and he escapes, and that's pretty much where the the footage, the beamed-in footage ends, and we return to the courtroom. The trial eventually concludes, you know, with Spock, of course, he's going to be cleared. The now-invalid Pike is, you know, he's offered the opportunity by the Telosians to live out the rest of his life on their planet, and they're going to give him the illusion of, you know, full vim and vigor. He's, He's going to be basically restored to his younger self. And that's pretty much where the episode ends. So uh, we'll go around the room here on thoughts for this one. I'm going to start with uh, with Lenny this time. What'd you think, Lenny? It's just uh, it's hard to think of these as two separate parts, but uh, I guess this one has the meat of it. And uh, it, you know, like I mentioned last time, it really has so many of the great science fiction themes in it. I mean, you have the whole idea of like virtual reality. Uh, you know, a lot of the themes uh, like you saw decades later in The Matrix, you see here about is it better to live your life in an illusion or in reality? You know, the whole idea of humans not wanting to live in captivity under any circumstances at all. Uh, that's a theme that we see in Star Trek again and again. And uh, this this episode is just really, like I mentioned, it's really rich. Uh, the characters are great. And uh, it, it just kept me going the whole episode. I really love it. Likewise. Likewise. I agree. Yeah. Mike? Yeah, basically everything Lenny said. I don't have much to, to add on, on that. <laughs> I really don't. One thing that has, has interested me is uh, picking up on Lenny's question, you know, is it better to live your life? in illusion or reality is I, I've wondered sometimes does Pike's fate on Talos 4 undercut the message of the episode to some degree maybe I agree. to a huge it degree does. Yeah. but I've wondered about that so I'd like to hear everybody's thoughts on that well I think Pike's circumstances make it a little different Yeah, because yeah. his options at this point he's not, yeah he's not he doesn't have any ladies waiting for him and it's not really <laughs> going to be able to use any pickup lines apparently in the near future so he's got that yeah. waiting for he's got a pretty miserable life in a scarred body maybe even in a lot of pain who knows you you're not really sure about that He's going to be trapped in a room that he can't open the door of. Exactly. And <laughs> stared at on a monitor by a stoned yeoman. So, you know, that's... Yeah, that I think it does mitigate it. His, yeah. his pro- his, pretty much his life had probably been planned out in Starfleet. You know, he probably planned to be a lifer and then retire or whatever. So this is... And he's obviously not going to be captaining another ship or teaching a class or something. So it's, it's almost merciful, and it, and it gives the Telosians something they wanted although it's sort of at the at the end of it and something scott and i had talked about i don't know why we were talking about this before the show this was like i think we were talking about this a couple weeks ago and uh i'm probably like mentioning one of the things you got written down for notes but i remember you were saying that uh you thought it was kind of harsh that there was a death penalty on going to tell us for that that was kind of out of control we were kind of joking that you know hey you know kirk is flying all through the neutral zone and breaking all sorts of taboos there and and it's not death penalty for something like that but at the end of this one when they decide when they're just like we've decided that human you know we're just gonna let ourselves die out because human beings are just too uncivilized to actually you're you're unsuitable for our experiments and he, he he said something about something, and they, they said, "Well, you know, it would be too dangerous for. Why don't you get somebody who wants to come here or something?" They said it would be too dangerous for our knowledge to be learned by any human beings. 
So we've got to keep our knowledge away from human beings. So that's where I think the death penalty part came in. I think it was like we can't get human beings in here because it would end up with a Gary Mitchell sort of situation. That's a good point I hadn't thought of because definitely, I mean, if these beings have the power – to you know, I mean, in the original cage, I get the feeling that their their power was pretty much isolated to their planet, which is why the planet was the thing that was off limits. Whereas in this episode, I mean, if they're actually beaming their thought things to Starfleet headquarters on Earth or wherever yeah. to several places at once, yeah, then these guys are wicked, mighty, powerful, and and you know they're casting complete illusions. Then yeah, that's not a technology that you want. You know, the Klingons or the Romulans or whoever. Yeah, even if the humans got it and controlled it, it could end up in somebody else's hands, and that could be trouble. So, yeah, they want. I guess they wanted to keep it contained. So that begs the question of why would they want Pike back? And it seems like it's almost uh, mercy on their part, that maybe they felt bad for imprisoning him in the first place, or maybe they – maybe – through the experience of having Pike or something, they'd picked up a little bit of humanity or gotten some of their original humanity back and maybe felt grateful to him or something. It seemed like they were doing a humanitarian act by bringing him back, but they were going to a lot of trouble to bring him back, that's for sure. Yeah, well, but you are thinking along the lines that that novel I mentioned uh, in connection with part one, the Burning Dreams, it picks up on that question and I won't spoil the the ending, but uh, the framing of Pike's life, the frame story in that novel is Spock being contacted by the Telusians again in the 24th century as you know Ambassador Spock, and the author just does a fantastic job of emphasizing throughout the novel that that illusion power the Telusians have is so dangerous. Like you said, that's the reason the planet was declared off limits, and both she and an author in the first Strange New Worlds volume. Uh, who wrote a story about Captain Pike, they both play with this question of, could Pike ever really be sure again that he left Talos for? Huh. And it's that's, I mean, that's, a, <laughs> that's where you get into the Matrix, Philip K. Dick aspects of That's like what he said with the Matrix. Yeah, what is reality? I mean, and for, for when you think about it, then in the context of the cage as the pilot episode it was intended to be, for a series to start off with this question of, how can you trust anything around you is real? You know, yeah. I guess lots of TV nowadays does that all the time. Dollhouse and other things like that. But, man, that's gutsy. I know? was going to come back with a little sarcastic comeback to that. Like, yeah, well, in the first episode they show is the salt is a monster one with the salt vampire. But that one also is sort of about what is real now that I think about it and what's not real. Because wasn't the salt vampire sort of he was his proxy wife? You know, she had... Yes. Saw a vampire yes. taking up the 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 personality of his wife and was his companion there, and he was absolutely attached. To, so it was is it is they have a sort of symbiotic relationship, but is it real love or is it just this creature? So I he, guess that was sort of yeah that, came up that in the first stupid episode. Costume aside, there's some really deep things going on in that episode. You mentioned. You called the, the the salt vampire Dr. Crater's companion. That made me think of the actual companion the of companion. Zephyr Cochran. Yeah. And, yeah. So Star Trek just hammers away on this question of, are you going to choose to live your life in the real world or, or, in, or not? Uh-huh. And I have to say, as I was sitting there <laughs> taking notes, watching television for this, mm-hmm. uh, when Vina's lined about, you just sit there living and reliving other lives came up. I felt sort of guilty. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
fan, I guess I've done that a lot. Sit there and listen to Is this not what, what, what Shatner was fussing about in that classic <laughs> yeah. Saturday Night Live Get skit? Alive. Exactly. Get out of your basement. <laughs> Take something I did in a lark and turn it into a colossal waste of time. <laughs> Go meet a girl. Here we are thinking deep thoughts. So. Well, back to the thing about the the Talosian's motivation in the end of this that that's one of those uh, I'm not sure if concession is the right word but that's one of those things I, I you have to kind of forgive I think in this one because I think that they go from being portrayed as not necessarily villains but they're they're an advanced species that. They're looking at Pike the same way we would look at putting uh, ants into into an ant farm, you know. So they don't really. I don't think they relate to him, but that premise. They do start to change. a little. Well, they do, but I mean, I, I at the end of this versus the end of the actual cage, I, I find those two endings very dissimilar. Whereas yeah. in the cage, you know, he escapes, he bluffs them, and he leaves. Whereas in this, he is welcomed back, you know, that we're going to take care of you. They become very benevolent, likable. You know, they even smile at Kirk and, you know, we'll take care of him. It'll be okay. You know, we love him. We'll we'll make sure he's all right. We'll tuck him in at night kind of thing. And it, it's like, well, wait a minute. They didn't seem at all like that during the episode. You know, they seemed very uh, detached from any sort of... Well, in a typical Gene Roddenberry Horta fashion, at the end, they're given a little bit of sympathy. Absolutely. They're, they're given a, they're, they're, we were a dying race. We really wanted somebody new to Adam and Eve, our surface of our world. They Basically, they just wanted their world to go on. They, it doesn't even sound like they wanted their race to go on. They just wanted their world. They screwed up their world, and they want huh. life to persist on it or something. But... And then they're and they're sad because they're like we're gonna die out and before we can do this, but there's nothing we can do because we have a responsibility not to release our powers to people who can't control it and stuff like that. So when they leave, it's in in the way, especially the menagerie is cut. He's 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 still a bit angry at him because he's like what no apology or anything like that. You know he's 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 still pissed off about the thing, but they you know they leave sort of. You know, he still doesn't have a phaser to someone's head. I think it's a little unclear what they wanted, because there's a line in there where there was, your ability has condemned the Telosian race to eventual death. Yeah. So I, I don't think it was just that they want they want to have people living on the planet. I, you know, perhaps they were going to try some kind of crossbreeding genetic manipulation yeah. kind You're of a right. thing. You're right. Damn that you and me- your transcript. That brings <laughs> me back to my question then of... Why? Why do they want? For, forgive my political incorrectness here, but why do they want crippled Pike? What yeah. use is he to? Well, them? I was gonna say, and, and Vina is probably what she's well beyond birth and age. No, 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 no. She says everything works. It's just kind of she's just like a jigsaw. Puppy. But that was thirteen years ago, too. Oh, yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yeah. He did the math on her age, and he was like, "Wait, you're older than." you appear and then yeah. the, so so she so maybe but you know if they have this technology they could be doing but it was also explained that they had sort of forgotten even how to use their technology all they could do is sort of create illusions with their minds and 
So I don't know, maybe, but maybe they were planning to do, you so, know, all they needed was an egg and a sperm. But it, if they're that advanced, wouldn't it seem like all they would need is maybe, it wouldn't matter whether it was male or female, they'd just need genes? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I still... But that's the technology today. Why why they want him, in the end... Right. I, I, I have trouble with the concept that they're simply being nice to him. <laughs> when I was a kid, that's how I understood it. So remember, yeah. I'm sort of seeing it also through that remembrance of it too. Right. Is is, is it seemed like a at the end of the the end of it seemed when I was a kid it was very tense because it was like ooh Mr. Spock could get killed because when I was a kid I was a sucker I always when they set up somebody to die even on stupid Batman episodes i thought that they were gonna die i got worked up about it according to that truck strop restroom you're, you're still a sucker but that's a whole different that's story. yeah that's slightly uh, inaccurate but no I, i'm just saying maybe, maybe this means that i've just become a jaded adult but as a kid i believed that now i've always called this keeper guy he's his name is actually the keeper but i've actually always called him dr bellows because i swore for years. yeah but it was a woman act- right they yeah, were all actually, played by women. But yeah, tell me yeah. that guy doesn't look like Doctor Bellows from I Dream a Genie. Yes, doesn't he? Does. he? Yeah. I hadn't thought it, but I can see it. <laughs> so I've always called him Doctor Bellows. So anyway, Doctor Bellows at the end of the episode has gone from being this creepy keeper guy that you know, the the zookeeper, to being kind of a nice, smiling, kindly, benevolent alien that yeah. that's going to take care of Pike, and they feel sorry for him and. That was I bought that as a kid, but as an adult, I guess I've just become more jaded. I don't buy it. I think there's a motivation there. They want him for something, and I don't think it's simply to make amends for how they treated him for yeah. you know the forty minutes and, that he was there. And if that's the case, then that means Pike's just willing to make the trade off too. That you know he probably knows about it and is like, also. Who knows how much communication there's been between Spock, Pike, and the. Thelosians. Right. Now, you would think maybe the Thelosians could act as a proxy for Pike and actually like read Pike's thoughts and transmit them to uh, Spock. Uh, that doesn't seem out of bounds of what they of what they showed that they could do. So, you know, who knows what kind of inner story is good? That could be a Star Trek book right there. Is just retell yeah. the story. From... I'm telling you, you got to read "Burning Dreams" by Margaret. Oh, uh, you definitely have intrigued me. I'm definitely yeah. going to check that, that out. A, that is a novel well worth picking up, and I'm thrilled. Pocket Books would devote a whole novel to Chris Pike. You know, I was I was floored by that. I was floored when they chose to include him in the new movie. I mean, so clearly he resonates with lots of people, and just from this one appearance. And I, I don't think you're just jaded, Scott. I think that's a really valid uh, critique of the the logic of the story, which. I had never thought of until just tonight. <laughs> well, the the so only I, thing I can chalk it up to, the only thing that I can think of as, as a way out is that, you know, Vina says something, and, and maybe Lenny could give us the exact quote, I'm not sure, but she says something to the effect that they, you know, are, are living vicariously through their yeah. captives. And so I wonder, do they simply, because they're closer to... Maybe they're closer to humans than any other creature that they have in their menagerie. So maybe they want Pike and Vina together and in love and all that simply so that they can live vicariously. Well, you know, you know, the monkey cage is always the most popular part of the zoo. 
<laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I've wanted to throw my poop at people so many times. Not as much with the public masturbation part, but the flinging poop, I want to do that all the time. Sorry. You're just wrong. Tangent. All right, well, speaking of the uh, of the keeper, I'm just kind of running through my notes here. Speaking of the keeper, uh, another thing, you know, I was talking last time about, you know, learning about uh, Jeffrey Hunter and all that, you know, that I, I didn't realize that he actually didn't die before the series came on. Something I just learned tonight was that uh, Mal- uh, Malachi Throne, who plays uh, Commodore Mendez, is uh, he actually did the voice of the Keeper too, and I did not oh. know that. Oh, maybe you're getting to it. I'm sorry, I'm jumping the gun. Go ahead. So he did. He did the voice of the Keeper when it was the Cage. They right. had to redub his lines when it was the Menagerie because they, I don't know, fluky thing or what. They hired the same actor to play yeah. a different character. So, you know, <laughs> well, that Mendes. was probably Roddenberry. He probably liked that actor. Right. And, yes. And uh, well, if you watch the the cage, there's one moment in the cage that doesn't have the the redubbed voice exactly. that the menagerie uses. Yeah. So you actually do get to hear uh, Malachi Throne's yeah. keeper voice, and it's yeah. really weird because it goes from being that that high pitched thing to being like a you know like a deep yeah. deeper. <laughs> yes. It's really weird. I remember when the cage was first released on home video cassette and they had used the footage from Menagerie that made it a Menagerie but then they supplanted with the, the original cage and uh, that really blew me away like whoa <laughs> well I actually have to ask you guys because I mean I, I've seen the I haven't I didn't read it for this uh, episode I just rewatched the Menagerie what, what, what yeah, are the differences is there a lot cut out of the cage that you don't well, see in the Menagerie big difference germane to part two of Menagerie is in the original ending of the cage, when the keeper says, when Pike says, "You'll give her back her illusion of beauty," and the keeper says, "All that and more," just from the menagerie, you'd think, "Well, what they're going to make her super duper beautiful this time?" <laughs> well, what they give, the more they give her, is, an, is a, a double of Pike. Right, so that's Pike, where they got the footage of her and Pike yes, going back into the I, elevator. That was another. That was my thing next question. Because I never knew that. I, I thought they'd hired a stunt double. Maybe it was Sean and Kenny again. It was, yeah, because it didn't fit into shot. the story anywhere. Yeah. So you can't, but, but in the original Cage, Pike watches a double of himself go back down underground with Vina. So, and that, and the, the Keeper's line is still, you know, I think it's she has an illusion. You have reality. May you find your way right. pleasant. So it's slightly modified in the Menagerie. But, so that's. I guess if you're trying to have them both in the same continuity, I guess when Pike went back to tell us four, the Telosians took away the illusory Pike or something. I don't know. Whoops, but, I hope his character hadn't developed in that time because it would have been pretty jarring <laughs> yeah. for her. Yeah, that's, and I, I think that's one thing, actually, that novel I keep plugging, Burning Dreams, doesn't doesn't address. But So that's one difference. And mostly it's – then there's there's a tag scene at the end of the cage where they're all back on the bridge, and it's sort of a classic – Star Trek joking around the captain's chair kind of moment where uh, Yeoman Colt just can't stand it anymore and she says, Captain, I have to know who would have been Eve and number one tells her to shut up. In yeah, that's right. I nope. forgot about that. And, uh, and then uh, yeah, Dr. Boyce leans over the arm of Pike's chair and says, Eve as in Adam and Pike says, Eve as in all ships doctors are dirty old men. <laughs> and then they go to warp and you're out with a, a nice lighthearted Yucking it up around the captain's yeah. chair. 
moment. Those are the only significant. I think um, the only major differences. Yeah. Well, there, oh no, there is one other. I'm sorry, and it struck me because again, watching that video cassette, it didn't fit into what I thought the Trek future was in regards to lack of sexism. I mean, we know there's some, right? But but uh, there's a there's a moment where uh, where they're on their way to Talos, and this would have occurred in part one of Menagerie had it stayed in. Pike's muttering about the fact that he has this new female yeoman, and he says, I can't ever get used to having a woman on the bridge. And number one looks up, really offended at this. Yeah. <laughs> Pike notices this, and he says, oh, sorry, number one, you're uh, different, of course. And at first you think she's going to take that, but then she does this double take, and things are worse than they were before. And so I, I'm sitting there as an idealistic kid, we're going to be perfect in the future, that Captain Pike making a sexist crack like that for anyway. I, mean, <laughs> I still don't quite know what to make of it. What about what <laughs> about a... when Spock when the women are only beamed over and Spock does that little like the super <laughs> the women? <laughs> All right, now how does that work exactly? The Talosians have an illusion power, but do they really have a power over like technology and everything? So no, they just exactly... they just made the guys who were running the transporter oh, just beam sure. down the women anyway, sure. yeah. thinking uh, that they're beaming I'll, everybody I'll down. Buy that. That's, that's, that's a good, good one, Chris. Good <laughs> Thank one. you. Like, I'm that's fast a on my feet explanation, with the energy but drink. Buy it, I that's, guess. No, that's awesome because Doctor Boyce even says in the briefing room they can make us pull any push any button. Push any push any button. button. It's, right. it's right there in the script. Don't throw the script at me. Don't don't confuse me. Well, there was back. Show up no. the transcript, Lenny. There was also the line that was kind of a double entendre where the where the theologians go. You know, we're gonna you know we're gonna leave them alone and see how the specimen performs. And I thought that was a little creepy. And I'm sure it was a Roddenberry, you know, just sort of little double entendre. Speaking of of things that were that were cut or whatever, the only it's not significant other than to me. I just thought I always thought it was really cool. Is in the cage versus the menagerie in the scene where Pike and Vina are having their little picnic. We learn that the city behind them, you know, that we just kind of catch a glimpse of that. You know that I, this is just a little aside. That shot in that city in the background there. Always reminded me a lot of the desert scene in uh, Horizons at Epcot. If if any of you guys are familiar with that at all, it's it's very similar to that. I always wondered if the if when they did Horizons, if they somehow had that in mind because that was actually a desert. It was uh, I think it was the Mojave Desert, if I remember right, and it had been like terraformed or whatever into you know this city, and that was actually like Pike's hometown or whatever yeah. i thought that was really cool but none of that's in uh, in the menagerie that was all that line or whatever was actually cut out of there also getting back to malachi throne now he would come back to star trek yeah. years and years and years later he oh, was uh right. senator pardek yeah. you are right yeah next generation he was a uh, pardek in uh in unification or is it unification or reunification yeah, unification unification yeah he that's was right. in that and yeah. uh According to Wikipedia or whatever I was looking at earlier, um, I haven't seen this myself, so I'll just throw it out there. I don't know if it's really true or not, but supposedly he he came back. He was a Klingon on the uh, that fan fan film internet yes. series New Voyages. Uh-huh. He was on one episode. It says I'm looking at IMDb. He had he played somebody on the old uh, Adam West Batman show, but we do not speak of that. 
not even for yucks. <laughs> eh, well, I, I mean, I'll ma- I'm happy to make fun of it, but I don't like to acknowledge. I, I mentioned it last month on the Star Trek Monthly Monday, and I noticed I could sort of sense Scott fuming a bit from <laughs> from several oh, states away. I could hear crickets in the background. <laughs> he was all he did the voice of. Uh, there's an episode. Oh God! And now I can't think of the name of it. It's double something. I can't think of the name of it. There's a there's an episode of uh, Batman the animated series where Two Face develops a third personality called the Judge, and uh, well, that makes sense. Did the uh, did the voice of that character too? Would that basically be a super ego? Is that do I have? Yeah, nice that's right. Yeah, that's cool. But what I remember him for, and you'll notice, I don't know if you guys caught it or not, when I started to say his name, I started to say Malachi instead of Malachi, because to me, that's how this we used guy, to pronounce it. He when we was were the kids. narrator on a record that we had, that we listened to a million times as kids, Chris and I. It was the Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. From the, the Adventures of Luke Skywalker RKO record. This was like one of those but yeah. years ago, movies came out. They would come out a lot of times with these story of records, which used like actual dialogue you know, and sound dialogue and, and sound effects and music and everything from the record. And it was basically a condensed version, audio version of the movie on a two-sided record. Often with a and little that, picture book that went along with it, right? And that's what this was. This was a you know, this was a little thing. But I mean, it wasn't goofy or anything. It was it was the actual movie of Empire. But it was just in a condensed format. It was condensed down to like 45 minutes or whatever, and it had a narrator. And Malachi Throne was the narrator. But, of course, on the back of the record uh, jacket, it just spelled his name. And so as kids, I always grew up calling him Malachi Throne. I didn't know it was pronounced Malachi. So to me, he's always going to be Malachi <laughs> Throne. So I always have That's to great. catch myself when I start yeah. to the, But this is different from the uh, you'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear R2B. Right. Okay. Right. okay. No, yeah, those no. are pretty much done as like kitty things with whole different yeah. actors yeah. and all that. No, this was actually taking the real soundtracks yeah. and, and dialogue and everything from Empire and just basically whittling it down. Using a narrator to condense it. Yeah. And uh, even better, yeah, there was a, a Raiders of the Lost Ark one that did it without any narration at all. That all was- through sound. It was awesome. That is cool. But I, I always just thought he had the greatest voice, you know, yeah. in that. He's got a very deep voice, and and he was just really good. And he didn't, you know, he didn't walk over things a lot. A lot of times it was just, meanwhile, back on Dagobah, you know, and then you'd, you'd cut back to you know Luke being trained or whatever. But it was, yeah. it's really good. Yeah, we'll throw so, that in there just to know what we're talking about. Not far away, Luke Skywalker rings his ten foot tom-tom to a halt. He takes out his electro-binoculars and scans the area, then makes a routine report to Han Solo, notorious space smuggler and friend of the Rebel Alliance. Echo three to Echo three. Something we mentioned last month briefly is the hallways in the Thelosians look like the Krell hallways in mm-hmm. Forbidden Planet. That was one of my notes. One of the things I liked about this was it had the feel of a TV show within a TV show, and there were actually yes. lines of dialogue that were almost like, hey, wait, don't touch that dial. There's more good stuff coming. <laughs> and, then, and then, like, Pike did the typical old man thing of where he falls asleep in front of the TV. It's like, well, they're not transmitting anymore because Pike's got a nap for now, you know. And 
and they Boop. care about him. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. time for Pike to rest. So it's like, okay, well, but it, it, the the TV show within a TV show theme is great because you have the three, <laughs> when when you're watching it, you have that three three le- levels yes. of you know, it's like an infinity cover on a comic yes, it's book. Like an <laughs> <clears throat> and then you notice, uh, I think it's the Act 3 break. There's no more transmission. And what turns out to be the illusion of Commodore Mendez is really pressing hard. Let's, we've got to have a verdict. got to have a verdict. And they all vote guilty. You know, Pike beeps guilty, and Mendez says guilty. And Kirk, after much soul-searching, guilty as charged. Yeah, and we fade to like, go to commercial. And then we come back to Act 4, and it's like none of that happened. <laughs> We're sitting there right. in the briefing room watching more footage from Talos. And by the way, in episode, in part one of the episode, Scotty is there. I think Uhura is there. Several other people besides the trial board are there. But for part two of the menagerie, it's just Pike, Mendez, right. I don't know. Yeah, they, they probably figured why pay all board. those actors. They had to go back on duty. I don't know what. But. They, they, they could just only make that part, yeah, and then they had to be back on the bridge or whatever. But I think it was probably more like, why are we paying all these guys <laughs> to be here when we can get rid of three or four of them? Anyway, it's a minor nitpick, but... No, see, I kind of took a little issue. Basically, we're supposed to think that this whole thing was for Kirk's benefit because they couldn't trust him to tell him the truth. You know, it's a little preposterous. I mean, I guess it's a conceit of the the story. Well, if the Thelosian started communicating with Kirk, he might, like, check himself into the, you know, infirmary. (laughs) Like, I'm hearing voices in my head, and I don't know if I'm worthy of being captain of the Enterprise right now because there's people telling me to drive it to the, this place that holds a death sentence. You know, it's just like if you're schizophrenic and you hear the voice of God in your head going telling you to go out, you know. So I guess, I guess the better explanation the is that Spock is saving Kirk from potential death penalty. Yeah. You know, he's he, got an alibi here. He's saying that I thought this, this was a real real court-martial. But I think still, he even says as much. He's, yeah. you know, Kirk, because Kirk takes exception like you did. He said, you could have just told me. And Spock says, and ask you to have face death, too. Oh, that's Spock, right. One, one of, of us, us is enough. Yeah. So Spock is being loyal to both Pike and Kirk to pick up on something I said earlier. You're right. And now, does Spock get off too easy? You know, at the end of the day, what, uh-huh. what he did is, it seems like a court-martialable offense. I mean, despite the historic value of yeah. Captain Pike... He what, should what at he least have about. a he should at least have a proper court martial and then be then be let go. You know, just if if they follow any kind of any kind of official bureaucratic process, it wouldn't be just like who would ha- you know would would Mendez have the authority to just say, oh no, it's a death penalty thing, but you know we're not going to even <laughs> pursue this. You know, could he do that? You know, and you guys he are could get in trouble for that. <laughs> Well, is this I'm, – I'm flipping real quick back through the list of episodes that have come before this, and I'm just trying to think, is this the episode that establishes all's well that ends well in the Star Trek universe? Because this does happen over and over and over again through Star Trek history where you can blatantly disregard the rules just so long as everything comes it, out kosher. And- it, it, it happens in TV – hour-long, half-hour-long dramas all the time because you got to wind it up at the end. I think it's just the nature of the beast. It's interesting, Scott. I don't know about the episodes earlier, but I think you could argue that Starfleet jurisprudence tends to, uh, <laughs> at least in the original series, be less concerned with the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. Right. I think that changes by Next Generation, actually. I find Next Generation's 
navel gazing obsession with the prime directive and all that stuff just enraging sometimes yeah they but, really um, take it literally in the next generation I mean, it's where like people they can't took a lot of liberties with it especially Kirk because and, of the stupid prime directive yeah. they say, although oh, we, where we, the we, law we can't is... help people who are hurt by the side of the road that might partially be because of Kirk <laughs> no doubt you know, it is you guys but, know that I'm a, I'm quite the apologist for Star Trek Voyager. I actually enjoyed the series quite a bit, and I'll make a lot of uh, of excuses for it and all that. But there was one episode, and I, I could not tell you which one it was. But Janeway has a line where she's talking about the old days and Kirk and those guys. Eh. And she says something to the effect of, you know, they'd never cut it in today's Starfleet. You know, they'd all wind up in <laughs> the fridge or something. Prison, and it right. pisses me off. I hate yes. that line. But Thank there's you. stuff like – Yeah. Oh, it's total. But I think we – I was going to say I think we've seen some examples in previous episodes of like, you know, Tristan Adams, doesn't he – they try to rehabilitate him after Dagger of the Mind and – uh, ben Finney from Court Mart, which is just the episode previously where somebody else is commanding the same starbase. Does, does that Ben Finney, he gets uh, help of some, there's some line at the end of, oh, we're going to give Ben Finney the help he needs. And I mean, so I think we've, we've got a precedent by this point that right. you know, Starfleet well, wants I'm, to make good out of bad wherever possible. That's true. No, I was, I was speaking more of, of, of the main players though. You know, your, your Kirk, oh, Spock, uh, McCoy, those guys where they, where they, it's mostly Kirk, honestly, but you know, where they, where they blatantly are told, you know, don't do this. They go and they do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, so long as everything comes out, all right, it's yeah, like, oh, that's well, a shiny all. button. Yeah, I mean, Star Trek is <laughs> being perfect example. You know, they go yeah. to a forbidden planet, they destroy the enterprise, they start Whoops. an interplanetary war. <laughs> you know, but, but as long as the planet Earth in the next movie, Scott. So what are you going to do? Go. Yeah, exactly. The so Council as long as you save the Earth, you're to good to go. Mitigating circumstances. <laughs> the charges and specifications are conspiracy, assault on Federation officers, theft of Federation property, namely the Starship Enterprise, sabotage the USS Excelsior, willful destruction of Federation property, specifically the aforementioned USS Enterprise, and finally. Disobeying direct orders of the Starfleet commander. Because of certain mitigating circumstances, all charges but one are summarily dismissed. The remaining charge, disobeying orders of a superior officer, is directed solely at Admiral Kirk. Yeah. So that, and that's it. If I ever get in just an awful shitload of trouble in my life, I've just got to figure out a way to save the Earth, and I'll be, you know, everything's cool. Did, find a couple of humpback whales. <laughs> did, did anybody else pick up the rare Star Trek statement on religion in this one? Oh, I should have, because I'm always listening for stuff like that. What was uh, it? Uh, it was the scene where they tortured him, and he was... Oh, right. And, you know, fire all around him. And it always disturbed oh, me as a kid because he had, like, he was, like, doing that thing where you dunk your arms in the water and lift them up, like, Whoa! like he had boiling oil or something. But then I was like, oh, it's a lake of fire. And they were like, we tortured him with a with a vision of a fable from his yeah. childhood. So I was like, uh, so that's what I, I jotted mean, down. I'm like, hell? Hell's a fable from his childhood? Well, the theologians have. <laughs> Figure that out. <laughs> they keep it ambiguous, That's though, good. don't they? I mean, it doesn't come out and say. No, it's not an overt. From your Bible on Earth. But, no, yeah, no, but no, it, but it's not overt. But it's just like usually Star Trek doesn't go there at all, though. You know, they keep it completely scientific. And yeah. when there's anything religious or godlike going on, 
that's when they start get that's the only time Star Trek touches religion it's for them to go wait is this really something religious happening or is this um just somebody with an, more advanced than we are and yes. that's and that's all playing off the like I can't remember who it was who said you know any civilization that meets a more advanced civilization you know will could will often think of them as as gods or yeah, having godlike power yeah and, and uh actually I think uh that was even something you touched on in your story too is there was some, oh. there was some <laughs> I have to say I hadn't read it in many years and, and I read it after I sent it to you guys and well, there's a little bit of cringing but not too much but I don't remember some well, there's oh, a oh, well, there's a yeah, character there's, that's there's a yeah. character that's a legendary Vulcan yeah. figure in it that's not yeah. all that they seem. That's true. Yeah. Be a spoiler now. That's all. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a I'm talking vague, <laughs> Hey, by the way, the the film that Kirk thinks he's watching or is watching. One thing that I had a question about is that what Pike is seeing, he's seeing illusions. So is Kirk really buying that they're filming what's in Pike's mind? Because if, if there was an actual camera on the planet, wouldn't it be showing you what the camera sees? Yeah, the and phaser blasting through the, the window and stuff like that, and the and the side of the hilltop disappearing and stuff it, like that. Yeah, because evidently right. the illusions are so good it fools the camera, right? <laughs> Well, well, there's, there's a lot. Well, I, I don't even think it was. A, it might even be just direct transmissions from their mind, so they can edit it in any way. So they might they might have recorded what Pike Pike's experience, which Pike, if that's the case, Pike evidently experiences things from out of his body at multiple <laughs> angles. It's a, but just the there's even a, <laughs> there's even a line in the in part one where they first start watching it, and I think it's Mendez that interrupts the thing and says something like, you know, no recorder is that clear, or something to that effect. And I'm yeah. like, since when? I mean, we've seen this over and over again, where you know, well, the zoom shot from space yeah. into the bridge yeah. doesn't usually happen in the records that probably of a star. You know, every Kirk one does it before he says "start date." Blah blah blah. You know, they're probably the computer doesn't have a little drone that's flying outside the Enterprise. It's like zoom in through the window at Kirk, and then you see Kirk going "start date." Blah blah blah. Well, no, he says he says no vessel makes record tapes in that detail. Well, you know, you right. wouldn't have the conversation between the doctor and the captain. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But you would also, yeah, the, the, that would follow the logic. The logic would follow that you could actually follow that couple that were looking to go go get some, and that we were talking about in last episode. Yeah. You know. So yeah, you're right. I mean, they they frequently talk to people. You know, they'll be in the conference room or something, and they'll be talking to them on that little three sided <laughs> monitor thing. And there's zooms and close ups and angle yes. cuts and pans, yes. and it's like, all right, don't tell me that that they're, they're never done in this detail because it happens in like every episode. So I don't buy that at all. All right, this would not be a two true freaks episode. Or actually, uh -oh. I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't have a nitpick. And this one for me is a doozy. All right, all right I'm love, warming up to shoot it down. I love these episodes, all right? I'm, I'm not knocking it, but there is yeah. one moment I just – I still can't forgive to this very day, and I hate oh. it, hate it, hate it. Yeah. Commodore Mendez is an illusion through the whole thing. I just don't buy it. It's stupid, and I don't even understand why. I think why. he was – he might have only been an illusion from the shuttlecraft on. Right. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. From the, so, yeah. yeah. Why don't but you why? 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 It's, I mean, it's to occupy Kirk and not let him 
see beyond, you know, start thinking critically about what's happening to him. And it also has yeah. a person that, that the theologians have placed someone in Kirk's ear who he trusts. And yeah. so they could control the situation maybe a little more by having a trusted character there to sort of manipulate Kirk. Possibly. Yeah. Why not have the real Mendez do all that? Because it's unpredictable have... what he would do. Yeah. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I, I see where you're going, though. I mean, it, it does make it a little more palatable to me, but I've never liked That's the one moment whenever I dig this one out and watch it that when it, as soon as I know it's coming up, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. It's just that moment that I won't say it's the jump the shark moment, but it's the moment in the episode where I just go, oh, brother, you know, because up to this point, I'm always digging the show. And then when he does his little warble fade out thing, I'm like, oh, God, because I just don't. It didn't bother me at all. That's strange. Does that illusion never do anything important? Because I could swear he was piloting the shuttlecraft. I think I I know for a fact he's. Kirk thinks he's piloting it, but really Kirk's Kirk piloting was doing it. it yeah. yeah, Kirk yeah. thought he was just like scratching a niche on his belly, but he yeah. was. You know, the only nitpick I have that sort of bothers me—I was mentioning before the show—is that let, let me get this straight: the Telosians had never seen a human before, so they get this really messed up Vina, and they're figuring <laughs> how are we going to put her back together? And they they couldn't figure out it. At, at a minimum, they couldn't guess that she'd be symmetrical. Yeah, yeah. They're symmetrical. Physio- they physiological things. and just general shape, they're the same as us. And they're symmetrical. Yeah. They just have a yeah. big old bulbous head. Now, if they'd given her a big old bulbous head, I could almost understand that. that they're that's like, yeah, to give a her a hunchback and make her whole. <laughs> that was their best guess. Uh, every time I see that, I, I just yeah. crack up. I, uh, I I don't know. I can't I can't write that one off somehow. You know, maybe the dot maybe the theologian doctor was drunk. Maybe they just didn't know how to use their equipment very well, and just tried to make her symmetrical and came up with some excuse to tell her. They said, "Well, we had no plan for human beings," and the maybe they just we did to her. Maybe they're just yeah, she might. You know, they they had her for thirteen years working on her brain, so. I mean, she was pretty thoroughly brain, and that's another thing is they covered the whole. So she was kind of brainwashed by that time. So I... <laughs> this last time I was watching it, and the part where she, you know, they they do the warble thing, and she, you know, she progressively gets, you know, more more hunchbacky, till we finally get her final form. I just I couldn't help but in my mind I, I heard Ash from Army of Darkness. You found me beautiful one, honey. You got real ugly. (laughs) (laughs) It's harsh, I know, but... Yeah, well, at least Pike didn't react like that. Pike was just like, turn her back. (laughs) (laughs) You'll give her back her beauty, right? And I was like, yeah, we will. We don't want to live with her looking like that. (laughs) We got to look at you, you know? (laughs) Nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. But it's pretty funny that I guess they had women play the role of the Telosians, and this is always something I noticed as a little kid, is when he, when Pike's got his throat around the neck of that Telosian, the the way the like the combination of the lady's neck, and they look like older ladies too, 
and the fake skin, it really looks like they have like these little bird necks that he could just squeeze a lot. You know, they look like their skin is really thin and, you know, they, it really has that feel of their bodies sort of gone to, to waste as their brains expanded. And that always, I remember that when it's a very visceral thing. When I see it, you can almost feel what their, their necks feel like. Yeah. Yeah. So really nice makeup. For, for that time period, great pulsing mm-hmm. veins and yeah. and, the, and different working parts of of the brains. Brains. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I liked about this episode, we were sort of talking about it. Then it was just the process that Pike. You see, unlike Kirk, who would have you know had a, he would have been at least making out with Vina a few times. I think Kirk would have been fine for being in there for several weeks, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's plenty of time to break out. I don't know what you're in such a hurry. But Pike, from the set, first second, he's he's testing, figuring out and what he has to do to escape and doesn't stop until he actually, you know, gets just the opportunity to, to escape. And, and he's relentless, you know, and it's, great. it's very well written how he... Uh, tests them and 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 pushes his boundaries and push and and notices things and works it all to his advantage you know i love the scene where he storms the the um plexiglass invisible wall and startles the one telosian and he's just like interesting yeah. you know he's he's figure he's he's starting to figure out exactly what's going on that instant he's just like Ooh, I got him, and there's, you know, I got something that they don't want me to have, and he immediately started fashioning that somehow into some some form of weapon, and to or at least to figure out what he was going to do. And, yeah, uh, it's really good. I mean, you got intelligent people in these episodes. It really, it it it, it makes it shows what what a great show this is. It, it's it's really good. Yeah, it it it, it shows that it's not just a good show; it's actual science fiction. Exactly. Really, yeah. It covers what real science fiction is, which is sort of issues of the day or issues of universal human problems, and and transposing them in there. And Star Trek, to its credit, could could sometimes throw two, three, four different kinds of that into every ep- into certain episodes, not every episode, but this one certainly. Packed. This one's packed. Jam packed. Not only is it two parts, yeah, but both parts are just uh, yeah. cover so much. And that's rare nowadays to see a real science fiction movie. You know, there's yeah. there's a lot of, and I think actually as much as I love the other the other ones, Star Wars, is that sort of help was helped or was you know the catalyst for a sort of switch from science fiction to science fantasy. Yeah, it's right, not it was, even clear. Star Wars is science fiction. If I could be sacrilegious here, you know, I mean, you may oh, you got... well, it was always they always called it a science fantasy movie because that's what it more. And George Lucas would be like, "It's not science fiction because it was in the past," <laughs> you know. So I want it to be more of a, right there. Of a oh, myth yeah, or, <laughs> mythical or legend. You know, you get into the whole Joseph Campbell, Bill Moyers aspect of all that, but that's that. Plugging our our next project here in in the Star Trek universe with Star Trek the motion picture that is the number one reason why I, that's my favorite of the Star Trek movies is because it's, science fiction. it's the purest to yeah. science yeah. fiction it's I'll it's the closest that. one to, to Roddenberry's original 
plan for Star Trek, which was heady science fiction, which yeah. is what the, the Menagerie and the Cage were, or, or the Cage, really. I mean, the Menagerie's just you know reusing the footage and, and making an intelligent episode of yeah, but of, they do, but that part's just, pretty science fiction too, right? Right, but I mean, the Cage in its purest form. I mean, that's why it was a failed pilot. It was right, too surreal. smart for TV, you know? One of the other aspects I really like about this episode is that it, it, you really see how clever Spock is. You know, the whole thing where he makes the fake message and everything. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, it, it, the Next Generation episode where Data sort of uh, forces the ship to go and when he meets his creator. It, it shows how dangerous these characters could be if they really set their yep. minds to it. You know, Spock's, he's a badass guy, man. He, he gets it done. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it's yeah that that's a very interesting point uh, that uh, these characters and they and they do sometimes sort of go off the rails too and that's those are some of the best episodes is or when when they do either they go off the rails like Spock does in the Pon Far or they do something like in this episode where they take over the Enterprise or something like that and. Usually we luck out, and it would have been a really interesting episode if Data basically turned into, you know, a Terminator or something, <laughs> or had gotten corrupted, and and uh, to because that's an issue with that's a very Star Trek issue. Yeah, well, not a, he basically does what Spock does. He takes over the Enterprise and and takes it where he wants it to go. Right. And which is very scary in a robot or a Vulcan, and that's why I think both of those characters were so potent. And I would have been very interested to see if that star, you know, the the second TV, the second planned TV series of Star Trek where they didn't have Nimoy and they had the other hundred percent right. Vulcan character, right. how well he would have flown. It, it's fifty-fifty to me. They, of course, that's turned up oh. after that. But, I think he would have been a lot like Data, frankly, because the yeah. whole plan for for that character Zahn was he was a full Vulcan who wanted to explore emotions. So that's basically an android wanting to become more human. You know? Right. So I think uh, it probably would have played out pretty well. I never heard that angle on Zahn before. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and there was I mean, going to be a lot of Kirk but... tension between him and Kirk because Kirk was going to assume, you know, he was going to put a lot of his... Uh, Assumptions on Zahn that he'd gotten off Spock, and that the and there was going to be a lot of play on Kirk expecting him to act like Spock and finding out the difference between Spock being half human and half Vulcan, yeah. which sort of made Spock a phantom character in in that, which, which was a really good idea. I thought excellently. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've I don't know. I would I would have liked it if if he was the full. Vulcan and, and playing it that way where Kirk was finding it hard to relate to him because he didn't have right. any thing in him like, like Spock yeah. did, you know, where sometimes he would break down or what, rather than what Mike was saying with the, you know, where he wanted to actually engage his emotions and explore humanity. I, that I don't like. I don't ever like. Well, I they could have made him like a student. But I don't like it when these characters, you know, like we're covering the, the DC stuff right now. We're talking a lot about, uh, Who's that Klingon dude, Chris? Konam, yes. Yes. And we call him the Pussy Klingon because he's he's against type and that you sort call of him thing. The just Pussy Klingon. What? <laughs> I said you called him the Pussy Klingon. Well, I, I, I yeah, I do because he's I'll against type. I'll sign on type. with it, but I'll sign on to it. Uh, it annoys the hell out of me. Well, so I was like... Spock on a Pussy Vulcan by 
he plays against type plenty. I mean, he's trying. Well, to no, he's, he's at least half human. He's half human, exactly. Oh, okay. He's he's, right, well. he's in conflict. Whereas think, somebody like like if you, if we if we had gotten like Cybok was a regular recurring character, I think eventually he would start to grate on me really badly because he was. You know, we've been presented that these people are a certain way, and then this one's not. And it's just, he kind of swaggers right in. See, and... that is the problem in Star Trek's treatment of all alien species. I mean, you can't say about anything human humans are this way. I mean, maybe there's some very basic things you could say, but, I mean, but so why should that be? Why should you know a planet full of Vulcans or Klingons or whatever? They're all going to be the same. I mean. And because I'm each a, other. it's stupid. Because I'm a Star Trek racist. You're a spacist. <laughs> You're a spacist, man. It started out with the holograms. There's you know, a- Scout would make little references to the holograms, and I thought that was kind of weird. And, and then he just thing- got on a full-on tear, man. And then I, you know, is is I, I don't think Scott should be allowed near holograms. Actually, <laughs> it's gone too far. If- <laughs> And I don't even want to say that. I I don't even want to tell. I can't even. It, it's really embarrassing in mixed company when he starts telling you know Ewok jokes. Um, <laughs> forget about the Shirons. I'm not even going to start on that. It's embarrassing. Looks well, around. Not. First, he'll look around the room to see if there's any Shirons in the room. And... Yeah, don't 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 get started on that because my father had a very real real racist term for the uh, for the Shirons, so we don't want to go yeah. in this direction. Uh, we'll let the old generation do whatever they wanted to do, man. You know? uh, and along with mentioning this this book that uh, that Mike's talked about, this Burning Dreams, which I really I've got to check that out. Yeah, I wasn't even aware of this book. Me. Now, Pike did have a comic book series for a while. I forget yes, how many yes. issues that ran. It was uh, 17. What, what was that? Was it the Early what Voyages? Early oh. Voyages. Yeah, I'm rereading that now. And uh, Well, I've, I say rereading. I've never actually read all 17 issues. I read the first six or seven and then stopped, and now I'm rereading the first six or seven again. But uh, it's real good, and yeah, it's yeah, I think I, I didn't make it more than that many either because what, what happened is it started out really good, and then didn't they get to some issues where they actually uh, adapted the cage? Well, the the third or fourth issue, I think, um, it's very early on. They, there's one issue that is the cage, basically from Yeoman Colt's perspective, because okay. they're bringing her on, uh, explaining you know that she's the replacement for this other Yeoman, whom we've now met, the Yeoman who dies on Rigel 7, who's only mentioned on screen. And so we get to know him for one or two issues before they kill him off. So then Colt comes on in the next issue, and she's got uh, problems trying to fit in on a new ship. And, oh, my God, I'm attracted to the captain, and, and the first officer is too. And so that's maybe kind of schmaltzy. But the, but but it, uh, so far I'm finding it to be a pretty good series. And I'm looking forward to getting to later issues where they start playing with the Trek timeline. And, you know, Captain Kirk teams up somehow with Captain Pike and, you know, all that comic-y goodness that can go on in comic <laughs> books. But... Uh, yeah, and I just was again. I'm not surprised it didn't last long because I would have always assumed, well, who cares about Captain Pike other than the diehard fans? But to to try to do that series, I think was really commendable. I uh, and it's good. Oh, ab- absolutely, and, uh, absolutely. I'm hoping with all the great stuff that IDW is doing, you know that that crew series is fantastic. It is, is top notch. It's so it's really maybe great. maybe we'll oh, see. 
It's a story, a, a comic book series by uh, IDW. It's called yeah. Star Trek Crew, and it's following the career of Number One. Yeah, it's great. And it's Is this really the John Byrne really one. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. It's good, huh? Have they collected it yet? No, the, I think there's only three <laughs> issues right now. But it's, it's good. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. If you like classic burn, like uh, you know, like classic, say early FF burn, you'll love it because he's on his A game, man. Because oh, well, I kind of gave up on him a few years ago, like he's, years he's ago. He's on his he's on his writing A game too. He's <laughs> on his. He really when they're going into warp drive, they're going into time warp drive. He's got yeah, all he the costumes, all the, details, the right. costumes, the hair, the hairstyles. He's got the whole look, feel, language of it. All fig- okay. all figured out, and it's oh, it's great. It's beautiful. Yeah. I'll echo what Mike said. He's got all the details right. He knows his track. He loves his track, and it's it's fantastic. In the most recent issue, I uh, I don't think I'll be spoiling it too much. Don't spoil makes, it. I haven't read it. <laughs> no, well, I'll say I'll just say this. He makes a connection to another Trek related project he's done, and I think he's building up his own. Little sub Trek universe, which is of, of obscure oh, Trek fine. stuff, and it's really good. It's really yeah, good. he's good at that because uh, I read the other one he did, which was uh, Romulan's The Hollow Crown. It was just a two issue, and that was like that, tying a lot of threads of different diverse Trek elements together and, and giving them little, you know, asides and, it's hard and stuff to tie together. It's not yeah. the easy stuff that you could yeah. think to tie together. It's well, it doesn't gosh, feel. T- it doesn't feel lashed together, too. It doesn't oh, it feel doesn't. forced it really together. It organic. It, and, it, and it also adds shade and depth to the things that it refers to without being too obvious about it. It's it's just very well done. It's I'm very surprised because I sort of just never expected to actually pick up a new John Byrne comic and be like, woo. And even the layout of it and yeah. and everything about it, feel, it feels like that 80s era John Byrne. Wow, now I'll definitely track it out. I was going to ignore it, but I'm happy to hear this. Oh, it's it's good. And that, you know, that tie-in thing that we were talking about, that's a that's a real tightrope act because I'm reading a book right now that's doing that and it's it's not coming off near as well. It's seeming like too many things are being forced so you know when it's done well like this it's you know it's really appreciated so what burns doing with those diverse elements and making them kind of fit is is really neat and it's it's rare because uh you know you don't you don't see it pulled off successfully a whole lot a lot of times it comes off as i don't know cheesy (laughs) or or amateurish or what i'll just put it this way scott who is one of the cheapest people in the world Self-admittedly, we'll pay three ninety nine for this comic book. Yep, absolutely. Uh-huh. It's the only That's one I have. You got to say for. <laughs> It's the only thing I haven't dropped. That's that's gone to that three ninety nine. So yeah, it's it's well worth it. I think actually at that point, mentioning your cheapness, we should <laughs> we should probably wrap it up. But uh, next time, oh boy, it's going to be fun. It's going to be Star Trek the motion picture it's going to be a a whole show dedicated to the awesome first star trek movie which you don't hear many people say the awesome first star trek movie but you'll be hearing it a lot there will be no naysayers on our show there will be no well i'm sure there'll be some nitpicks and okay we're done (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, well, I guess we'll. I guess, as Scott reminded me, since I'm rude, that we'll thank our guests for coming, <laughs> oh, thank taking you for time out of their busy schedule and losing a month of their time in hibernation just <laughs> yes. to do this show, just to keep it fresh. <laughs> well, thank you for having us. Our pleasure, absolutely. Yeah. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email us directly at two true freaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. The Two True Freaks now have a phone line where you can call and leave a completely inappropriate message. Maybe we'll even use it on the show. That number is 1 585 COP LURE. That's 1 585 267 5873. If you enjoyed this show, why not review us in iTunes? And if you didn't enjoy this show, why not review us in iTunes? Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are now also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcasts.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time but my time is finally near And I will see my dream come alive at last I will turn